If you have your copy of God's Word, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 12 through 26 this morning. First half, we're going to work our way up to verse 19. Then we're going to pick it back up again in uh, verses 20 through 26. So John chapter 12, what's just happened is this pivotal event has transpired in the ministry of Jesus, and it's, it's, it's the bringing Lazarus back from the dead. Now, in bringing Lazarus back from the dead, there's a profound impact upon all those that saw and all those who heard about it. And so what we see from that is it, Jesus calls Lazarus from the tomb, and people begin to believe in Jesus on the basis of what they've seen him do. And so up to this point, people have seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things, and so he begins with the whole water-to-wine fiasco. That's nice. And so then he kind of works through that. He gets to the end, and now he has called Lazarus. He has brought somebody who is dead, not just sick, dead, like flesh beginning to rot, beginning to stink. This is what his sisters say. And he calls him back from the dead. And so they see Jesus do this. They recognize in that action he actually does have the keys over life and death, as he says in Revelation 1. And so Jesus calls him back from the dead. And people's lives begin to be changed and transfixed. And what we see is the continuing fallout from this occasion. Now, John chapter 12, when we pick it up, Jesus is walking up to Jerusalem. And there are those who have seen, who were there in Bethany when he called Lazarus from the grave. And they've continued to follow along. And then we see that there are those in the city that hear about it. And they want to come out and find out exactly who this guy is how he has his power, how he has his ability, and they want to know more about the guy. And so we're going to see people begin to break into uh, different camps. And so we'll see four real responses to Jesus. And in that, we begin to see some of our own responses to Jesus. How we, on the hearing of the testimony of Jesus, this one who took on sin, who took on death, who took on our punishment, who overcame the grave and is raised and exalted and sits at the right hand of God and beckons us come, we begin to see our own responses in line with some of these. Look here in, in verse 12 of chapter 12. It says, The next day a large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so you've got this crowd that's walking with him and this crowd that's exiting the city and they're coming out and so they've got these palm branches and they're laying them down in front of Jesus and they're praising Jesus and they have this psalm. They cry out from Psalm 118, Hosanna, Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we see that there's some understanding building in their mind of who they think Jesus is. But at the base level, it's wrong. It's wrong. There's, there's no absence of excitement. There's, there's no loss of just really recognizing and wanting uh, th this guy to be who they think he is. And so they, in a very real sense, they think he has come to be this cosmic deliverer. They think Jesus is this, is this princely Messiah who's come through and who's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to restore everything the way it should be, the way that in their hearts they know it should be, the way it ought to be. And so they have this conception of Jesus, and they begin to praise him and worship him on the basis of who they think he is, not who he actually is. Look carefully at what they say here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They would crown him king, but they don't really understand what that means. In their minds, there's this very real understanding that they thought Jesus was coming in as this earthly king. 
to establish an earthly rule to kick the Romans out, to bring everything back, and the temple worship could be the way that it used to be, the way that they want it to be, the way they know it ought to be. So they cry out and they recognize Jesus as king of Israel. How many of us in our own conceptions of Jesus have named him king over different things in our lives, but we don't really understand that he is the true son of God, both fully God and fully man. And their understanding of who Jesus is they refuse to see the divine. They refuse to see the divine. Their, their minds are blind to it. Their hearts are hard against it. But they want deliverance. But they, under, they don't understand the type of deliverance Jesus brings. They recognize the same thing. Run into people who have, have one addiction or another. They have one problem or another. They want more money. They're struggling with this or with that. And in Jesus, they find deliverance from the physical but Jesus brings a deliverance that is spiritual. Jesus brings a deliverance which finds us enslaved to sin and death. They wanted the deliverance that freed, brought them free from the Romans. And the deliverance Jesus was bringing was so much greater. But they're beginning to miss it. Jesus found, listen to this, it's the king of Israel, he's coming in. So Jesus looks around, he finds a young donkey, and he sat on it. And just as it's written, from 500 years ago, ago from the book of Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Have you ever been in a situation where you expected it to be one way and then it just found yourself woefully disappointed? Maybe your friend set you up on a blind date and they kept talking about how great a personality the girl had and you find that that's really all she has going is this great personality. And then she says the same thing to her friends, I thought you said he was cute. Maybe in a dimly lit room with a sack over his head. Maybe. Maybe. And so sometimes we find in life that our, our expectations aren't followed through. When they recognized or they had this desire that Jesus would be this king coming into Israel, kings don't ride lowly donkeys. Kings don't ride lowly donkeys. They ride war horses. They're, they have fanfare. They have chariots. They have all these things that would come into town. And so Jesus, seeking to fulfill Zechariah 9, which was written because he was going to do this, he looks around, he sends his disciples out as we read in the other gospel accounts, and they get this donkey. And so Jesus, in this, is completely upending their understanding of what the Messiah would do. He is completely taking their conception of who Jesus would be, this deliverer, and showing them that it is so much different than they could ever imagine or expect. So he comes around and he finds the lowliest beast of burden that he could find, a donkey. Let me read to you from Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, some of the exiles has come back from Babylon. They're dwelling in the land. And we begin to see this, this prophecy for the Messiah spelled out. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. He's calling them to be excited. He's calling them to get excited, to recognize that something great is about to happen. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. You can sense that it's palpable. It, this, this feeling of this deliverer is coming, it leads us to chant. It leads us to cheer. It leads us to shout. This is, in a very real sense, what our worship should be. 
When we gather together and we sing praises to God, it shouldn't be this humdrum, like it should be, it should be boisterous, we should be jumping up and down, we should be excited. Why? Because you worship a king who is worthy of every form and fashion of worship you might be able to bring to him, not that which you can just muster to spit out in that moment. Amen? He's calling them to be excited about him. He's calling them to recognize who he is. He says, righteous and having salvation is he. So this king is holy. His king is holy. He is this moral king. He's this king who can affect radical change in their life. And they say, having salvation is he. This king is bringing salvation in his way. He's not coming with his sword. He's not coming with an army. But he's absolutely bringing salvation with him. And then there's this thing that completely violates expectation. Mounted on a donkey. Mounted on a donkey. Hold on a second. Let me read back over that. Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming righteous and having salvation in the On a colt, the foal of a donkey. What? Come on. Like, does nobody read this and just say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Every king I've ever seen, I mean, I, I, I know when princess die and all these things, and so there's always the donkey bringing up. I mean, that's like the, that's what we're looking for is the donkey. No, it's this, it's this white stallion. It's this, this beast that's just glorious, mane flowing, tail gorgeous. But here we see this king in Zechariah coming on a donkey. And so the question has to become in our minds, what in the world, God, are you up to? What are you trying to communicate? There is so much humility, there is so much humility evidenced, shown in even the choosing of the thing he would ride on in King Jesus. On a coal, on the foal of a donkey. But look at all the things this gentle, humble king will accomplish. Look at all the things he'll accomplish. He said, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He takes and he describes all the things available in the war arsenal within, the, within that 6th century B.C. Uh, culture. And he says this king's going to take all these things and render them useless. And render them useless. The battle bow, the chariot, the war horse. And he shall speak peace to the nations. When King Jesus shows up, he brings peace in his wake. When King Jesus shows up... He causes nations to cease from striving, and he causes our hearts to find peace in him. Do you know that your heart can only ever find peace in Jesus? It can't find peace in your spouse being better. It can't find peace in you being better. It can't find peace in your, your boss, your coworkers being better. It can't find peace in your economic situation at home being better. It can't find peace in sobriety. Your heart can only ever find peace in Jesus. He says he speaks peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Jesus will rule everywhere for all times. Amen? Amen. He says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, old prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. In Zechariah, the background, the whole reason Jesus goes out and rides on this colt, on this donkey, is to portray that the peace, the hope, the joy that he's bringing is so much greater than we could ever imagine, hope for, or anticipate. The hope that Jesus brought when he rode this humble donkey in Jerusalem was the hope for all men, the hope for all women, 
the hope for all time, freedom from sin and death forevermore. And he boldly declared it in an incredible act of humility. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, the disciples, Peter and and the gang, it says, they didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The disciples see Jesus coming in, and something in their minds is, has to be saying, what in the world is up with the donkey? I mean, really? Like, all this, all this fanfare, and people are completely underwhelmed in the, in the ride you choose, Jesus. I mean, we could have gotten the Bentley for you, and you get the old 67 VW Bug. I mean, the thing is dual exhaust. It's a wheelbarrow. Come on now. What's going on? And so the disciples don't even get it until after Jesus' resurrection. And so it's, it's little wonder that those around him didn't understand. Look here, we begin to see the two crowds. It said, the crowd that had been with him, verse 17, since Lazarus had come out of the tomb and he had raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. And then verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him, this is the second crowd, was that they had heard he had done this sign. So we see these two groups. We see this group that has witnessed Jesus do this amazing sign, calling Lazarus from the tomb. And it affects a lasting change in their lives. And what is it? It says they continued to bear witness. The Greek is painting this picture for us that from the moment they heard about it, the moment they saw it, witnessed it, they didn't do anything but talk about it. From their primary encounter with the power display of Jesus, they could do nothing else but talk about how amazing Jesus is. To the point that the word had already traveled to Jerusalem and all those who had heard on the basis of their testimony rushed out to see him. Imagine this picture. Each one of us that has encountered Jesus should follow in vain with these two. Each one of us who have seen Jesus should find ourselves so preoccupied in the communication about Jesus that it finds its impact in places we don't even live so that people there would come to know who Jesus is. This is what we see happening here. They're so overjoyed, they're so excited about who Jesus is, they can't shut up about it. Have you ever found somebody who has like a terrific stock tip? First church I ever worked at, one of, the, one of the members, it was a small church, and this guy had bought some stock. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, lest you go out and purchase it and then say, that was a horrible idea. Like, why would you ever give that to us? So he gave people this stock tip, and like every meeting with this guy was, let me tell you, this thing's undervalued. I've been tracking it for a long time. I've made my first million just with this one stock. I mean, that's enough. I'm like, boom, 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 boom. I'm not making any money, and so it's like, can I get a share? Can I get a share? Can I get a share? No, you can't afford that. Okay, I don't want to share, but could you get a share? Can I hold it? You don't actually get to hold the share. Okay, now I'm really confused and disappointed all at the same time. So everybody he meets with, he's talking to him about this, this stock and how great it is. And it's, it's this type of deal where he walks up, he's like, hey, hey, Barry, let me, let me tell you about this. Hold on. This is the most amazing thing you've ever heard. You're going to be a millionaire. You're going to be a millionaire. And then he'd go over and say, all right, Johnny, let me tell you about this stock. This is good stuff. I told Barry. Barry's going to buy in. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna refinance his house. He's going to use that money to buy in. All right, Ken, this is good stuff. Barry, Johnny, refinancing. They've asked a uh, personal loan from me. I'm going to give it to them. Why? The stock's so good, so good. Buy it now, buy it now. People bought it, and the bottom fell out of the market, you know. But they got excited. Now, this is an example of, of good news that's a little bit of an oversell. That guy should have been selling for that company. In fact, he wasn't, but... What we find is that in salvation, we've got good news that will never disappoint. 
In salvation of Jesus, we have good news that will never disappoint. It's not some stock that could go up one day and down the next. And as long as you just stay in the market and ride the wave, you'll be fine. With Jesus, every day, no matter what we face, we're able to overcome. Because in Jesus is the good news that never disappoints. In Jesus is the good news, is the change of heart, is salvation, whereby we receive freedom from the sting of sin and the pain of death forevermore. Amen? Amen. If Jesus' news is so great, why aren't we telling more people about it? If Jesus' good news is so great, why are our lives not transfixed? If Jesus' good news is so fantastic, why are we not captivated in the same zeal? It's because we don't feel the same burden they did. They saw the excitement of Jesus, but Scripture tells us that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, giving testimony to these things, infusing us with power, infusing us with strength. If we would give ourselves to be led by the Spirit, our lives would be transformed, and we would be like those who could not shut up about Jesus. Look at the negative side of this. The negative side about this is the Pharisees who cry out in verse 19, and they say to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, they say the world has gone out to him. The Pharisees lamented the broad spread of Jesus' ministries. The Pharisees who were seeking to put Jesus to death, who were actually seeking to also put Lazarus to death, were so dismayed that the message of Jesus was going far and wide, looked at it and said, we've already lost. His message has gone too far. The world is going out to meet it. As we prepare to take the first of the two elements, I would ask that you would consider in your hearts, how, are then, how then are you responding to Jesus? Are you responding to Jesus and saying, Jesus, thanks for the life transformation, but the rest of my life is mine? Or are you responding to Jesus and following the line with the crowds who go along with him, praising him as he goes and submitting your life to him from this point forward. Let me ask the deacons to stand. Let me ask that you would turn your hearts in careful consideration of that as we pass out the first of the two elements. If you would take and hold until everybody is received, then we'll take it all together at once. In the 26th verse, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. We pick this back up, we recognize we've seen a few groups so far. It's the crowd that's with him, the crowd that goes out to meet him, the disciples, and also we see the reaction and the response of the Pharisees. But as Justin mentioned in his prayer, we begin to see this other group that really begins to completely expand uh, where we would see the gospel go. These Greeks show up. Uh, Guys, men and women with no uh, Jewish background, they show up and they have a really clear question And the question is, can we see Jesus? They wish to see Jesus. So they go up, they find Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. Philip and Andrew go see Jesus. And these guys come up, and we see Jesus turn and give this amazing response. And in it, we find all of us, each and every one, every man, woman, and child, being led with a really clear direction of Jesus' teaching. Look what he says. It says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his resurrection. All thus far in the Gospel of John, he said, the hour is coming and is not yet. The hour is coming and is not yet. Now he turns and he says, the hour has come. Things are getting close. It's about to be over. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Jesus is pointing at his death. All along he's been leaving hints. All along he's been leaving indications that he has to die for humanity to be changed. His mission wasn't to come and to be this type of moral influence thing whereby if he spent enough time with people and he communicated with enough people in enough ways and enough stuff gotten written down that people's lives would be impacted, that they would be better. For Jesus' mission to be successful, he had to die. For his mission to be successful for us, he had to rise again. So he's telling them about it from a concept that they would understand from this agrarian mindset. Seed grows up, unless it dies, unless it falls to the ground, it doesn't bear any fruit. Valerie and I have seen this same principle uh, bear itself in our lives this year. Last year we had a bumper crop of basil. I know everybody else has like bumper crops of zucchini and squash. I didn't get any of those. It was bloom rot, right? What did you have? I had squash bugs. You want some? I got them. Come get them. But basil, I mean, you can smell basil from three counties away from my house. I ate so much pesto, I started turning green. I mean, it was, it was basil all over the place, bumper crop of it. Well, at some point, we got tired of harvesting basil. I mean, I love basil as much as the next guy, but come on. And so we left it out there, and we left it out there, and it grew, and it's this whole thing. I mean, I have neighbors two houses away that can't see me because of the basil. Winter comes, and what happens? That first frost snips that basil. It dies. It, it goes in. And we said, huh, oy vey, end of the basil. <laughs> Not so. This year, we planted things. We got in. We've got all this good stuff growing up. I actually have some zucchini this year, some squash. Some of you will get some of that when I get tired of it. We got some tomatoes, some jalapenos, and we got basil everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you're like, what's this little weed? It smells a lot like, oh no. <laughs> Pull up the basil plant. We're about to be overrun. When the seed dies, it will indeed bear much fruit. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are evidence of his fruit today. Amen. Everybody you share the gospel with, the Holy Spirit moves in their heart to lead them into faith. They, too, are evidence of the fruit of Jesus. And he calls us, each and every one, to be fruitful. To be fruitful in the expanse of this gospel message. To share it with others. That the zeal of Jesus will be found in our hearts and visited upon all those we come into contact with. He says, if it dies, it bears much fruit. And look what he says here. Is this message right for us, right in the heart of our times. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Can I tell you something this morning? Christian, as you sit here today, this is the closest you will ever get to hell. This is the closest you will ever get to hell because this is the furthest you will ever be away from Jesus. Lost person, as you sit here today, this is the closest you will ever get to heaven. Because unless you submit your life, unless you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, this is it for you. This is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. This is very much the teaching Jesus offers us here. Unless we look at our lives in such a way as in comparison to our love for Jesus, it causes us to hate our lives. 
So he's not talking about actually hating your life, but he's saying your love for him, your love for his kingdom must be so great that this life pales in comparison and is tantamount to hate. Everybody who loves their life is going to lose it. And you're going to spend eternity separated from God in that place the Bible calls hell. It's also eternal and it's full of anguish. It's full of pain that never ends. It's full of misery that never goes away. I don't say this to scare you. I say this to communicate to you the great love that God has for you. That he sent his son Jesus to be perfect and sinless. To die for you. To take on God's wrath that was, should have been met out on you for your sinfulness, for your pride, for your arrogance, for your gluttony, for your idolatry, for your investigation in, in pornography, for all these things, for all the ways you've invested your life in things outside of Jesus. Jesus took the punishment. He took the wrath of God for you on your behalf so that this life may not be all that it, there is for you, so that you might dwell with God forever in eternity in heaven. So Jesus tells these Greeks this, who want to see Jesus. Then he goes on, he says, and if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus has this message for all those who are already following along. They saw themselves in very much real senses. Somebody says, you believe in Jesus? They're like, man, I'm following him. I left my home in Bethany. I walked up here to Jerusalem. I told all these people about him. And so Jesus comes to these people and he says, if you're going to serve me, you're going to find yourself doing the things I do. If you serve me, you have to follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. Christian, if you believe the only decision you had to make in life was believing in Jesus and then your life gets to be whatever you want it to be, you have been lied to. When you submit yourself to Jesus, when you choose to follow him, your life becomes his. You hand it over to him. What he wants you to be is what you become. What he wants you to do is what you do. Who he wants you to forgive is who you forgive. Why? Because that's what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The New Testament does not have a compartment of understanding for the Christian who submits their life to Jesus in salvation and just says, I used to do whatever I want to do now. Man, I'm so glad I got that hell thing taken care of because that was a real burden. That thing was terrifying. Like flames, the worm never dies. I'm not sure how that works. I've thrown worms in fire and they for sure die. And so a worm that could endure fire, that sounds awful. I bet you can't even fish with that thing. Glad I got the hell thing taken care of. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to live however I want to. I'm going to enjoy whatever I want to do. I'm not going to have a life that's modeled on Christ. That sounds cumbersome. That sounds burdensome. That sounds awful. That sounds like what the preacher was talking about. When's lunch? This is what Jesus says we believe this word, if you believed it to stake your life on it, then you better believe it to base your life on it. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you believe the gospel for salvation, you absolutely better believe the gospel for living. It changes us into salvation and it affects everything from here on out. It calls us to service. It calls us to denial. It calls us to follow him wherever he will lead. And this is the beautiful promise that if you follow him, 
you receive the honor from the Father. The honor we receive from the Father is forgiveness of sins, eternal life, spent in heaven, enjoying God's presence, gathered around the throne and singing holy, 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 as long as he leads us in the chorus. Amen? As we prepare to take the second of the two elements, we recognize that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out on our behalf so that we might be saved from the stain of sin. And so as we prepare to take the cup and as I ask the deacons to stand, I want you to ask yourself this question. In what way has your submission to Jesus impacted your living today, last week? And in what way will it continue to impact your living for Jesus tomorrow, next week? Living for Jesus, submitting yourself to him, is so much more than coming to church. It's living a life that gives a bold display of what it is to follow one who sets a course for faithfulness. So let us set our minds on that as we distribute the cup and ask again that you would take and hold, and we'll all take together at the end whenever all have been served. Reading again out of Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 27. It says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let me ask you to stand as we enter into a time of application. Friend, that in whatever ways... God has moved in your heart. Perhaps for some of you, there's been a sin you've been dealing with. You've you found yourself being moved to relinquish today. You want to come and pray at the altar with one of these deacons or just come and pray at the steps. I invite you to do that. Or maybe for some of you today, you'd like to give your heart to the Lord. We invite you to come forward and meet with someone who would love to talk to you about what a life lived with Jesus and a relationship with him looks like. In whatever ways God is moving and stirring in your hearts, I would ask that you would be Uh, begin to respond at this time. Let us turn our hearts in application to reflect upon the truth of the text as we unite our hearts together in song.